Good evening, and welcome to La Raza Chronicles. Bienvenidos a Crónicas de la Raza, with Nina Serrano, Julieta Kuznir, Renda Ilescas, and myself, Vilma V., and I'm going to be your host this evening. First, we want to give a big gracias to all of our members and listener supporters who donated to KPFA during our spring fun drive. Thank you all so much. And if you've been meaning to give but somehow missed the opportunity, you can still go to kpfa.org and donate. And there's still a list of all the thank you gifts for you to choose from. So if you've been putting it off, you can still do it. Thank you all so much for supporting your free speech community radio 94.1. So tonight we're celebrating the release of Oscar Lopez Rivera from federal prison. He will be in the Bay Area tomorrow at the First Presbyterian Church in Berkeley at 7 p.m. You can still go to brownpapertickets.com to get your tickets. The program at the Presbyterian Church includes the John Santos Quartet, Rico Pabon, and the youth bomba group Genepas, led by Shifali Shaw and Hector Lugo. But there's always so much other great stuff happening in the Bay Area that we want to cover here in La Raza Chronicles. So we have this interview that Nina Serrano did with Andrew Wood, who's the director of the San Francisco International Festival, which runs from May 25th to June 4th. Let's take a listen to that interview now. This is Nina Serrano for La Raza Chronicles. My guest today is a poet not so much in the writing down of words, but rather in the gathering of events, whole events, and interweaving them into one whole. And I'm speaking about Andrew Wood, who is the director of the San Francisco International Arts Festival. He's bringing together film music, dance, spoken word, improvisation, forums. He's bringing together the whole world of art as it relates today, and he's entitled it this year, because this has been a yearly event since 2003, In the Dark Times, Will There Also Be Singing? Welcome, Andrew Wood. Thank you. So glad you're here. I'm intrigued so much by this title of this year's festival. It's a two-week festival. In the dark times, will there also be singing? Yes. It's a quote from Bertolt Brecht. The whole quote is, in the dark times, will there also be singing? They'll be singing about the dark times. We are in, just to say, a strange year, the first year of the Trump presidency. We wanted to put together a body of work and a lot of ideas around how, as a sanctuary city or as the Bay Area, how are we responding to the Trump presidency and what are we doing? So we have some performances that relate to that. And we also have a workshop and a forum being organized by the Center for Political Education. Um, the forum, the, the title of it is In the Dark Times, Will There Also Be Singing? And the idea is that we want our audience members to be politically active. With moving to Fort Mason and with them becoming partners, they did ask, and we have acquiesced quite happily, that we should do more family-friendly programming. So we have got a, a whole list of works this year that are for a family audience, for, for children and parents to see together. Uh, and the politics, like I say, I think it's just required of us. I think it, it's, it's almost a duty. You know, we have to do this. There's no 
oh, there's a Democrat in power, so we don't have to care anymore. It's no, this is serious. And the, the state of California, the city of San Francisco, the Bay Area, Berkeley, we all have to be in this together because what is happening now in this country is too dangerous to ignore. And so we're trying to, to balance all these different things. Can you discuss the Latino art that's going to be featured? Sure. Um, there's going to be a number of different things. We're making not his U.S. debut, but his Bay Area debut is from Pablo Estagarabia. He does tango. He has a CD. is called Tangos for Piano. He's certainly carrying on in the Piazzolla sort of tradition of making this more about, about jazz and freestyle and a lot of different things. He'll be having a conversation with the audience um, talking about politics, but what's, what's politics and what isn't politics? We have a company called Abada Capoeira, and they're local from the mission. But you know, capoeira is a slave form of art. The artistic director, Marcia Treidler, is an immigrant. So she has a program in the Mission District of San Francisco that trains you know, the children and the grandchildren of the people that were the original sanctuary city refugees you know, that, that's, that are still in the Mission, that are still in San Francisco. And it's, and it's still a Latino program that teaches the traditions of capoeira, the folklore of capoeira, and the politics of capoeira. Abada always bring in master artists from Brazil. But what's happening is they, they bring them in for Carnival. But what we do is we keep them an extra week because they brought them all this way. And what usually happens is they do the parade and they all turn around to each other and say, well, now what are we going to do? And so what we do is we put them in the festival the following week. So they, they train all the, all the contingents to be in the, in the parade. And then they also work with um, Abada's adult company to create new work uh, to then put on the stage at the festival. And it's a brilliant show. They did this in 2015. You know, one of the things about being at Fort Mason is it's a really beautiful place. But the hill that surrounds the marina district is sometimes as much a psychological barrier as it is a physical one. And a lot of people don't feel as if they're welcome in the marina area. But the thing is, it is beautiful and it's a national park. So it's every person's right to be out there. And every person should be able to go out there and feel like they're welcome and feel like it's theirs. And so when in 2015, when Abadal were at the festival, I stood on stage and said this to their audience, this is yours. This area is your area. This is your land because this is national park territory. This is all everybody's right to be here. And I think that's what we're trying to do is really make it so that everybody feels that they're welcome in that part of the world and it's not an exclusive enclave. It's actually something that all people in the Bay Area should claim as their own. Can you speak further about the Latino programs after May 30th? Sure. Um, my favorite, well, they're all my favorite. I always love Yalisa and Caminos Flamencos. They are putting on a program called uh, Cafe Flamenco. But uh, for me, it's sentimental. Yalisa and I started Cafe Flamenco back at ODC Theatre in 2000. So we did that 17 years ago. Were you a flamenco dancer? No, 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 no. I'm, I, I, when I walk on stage, the first thing I feel is the heat of the lights and I start to melt. <laughs> so I've never been able to be an artist on stage because I, 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 I would literally die. I, I'm, I'm the one that's organizing things in the background. Well, you've done an amazing job. Just the brochure, there were 12 we're, days. We're 12 of days. Of 12 days of festival yeah. and many, many performances. It's about 60, 60 different companies from about 12 different countries and about 100 performances. The other thing that we're trying to do, we're doing for the first time this year, is there's enough program density now for us to start inviting presenters from around the country. So my association, California Presenters, is having its annual conference in San Francisco during our festival, and they're all coming over 
to see work. We're hosting them for a reception, for dinner, and then they're all going out to see performances with the idea that they may want to book some of those performances in their own venues. And people are coming from other parts of the country. And we have one presenter coming from Perth in Australia as well. So there's a, there's a professional audience starting to gather for the festival to come and, and see the work of the artists that are performing. And even though we call this international festival, 25% of the work is international, 75% is local. So what we're trying to do with, with inviting presenters is create other earned opportunities for our own people, being conscious that a lot of those opportunities will happen somewhere else and trying to create this discrete marketplace where a professional audience can come and see the work because they can see six to eight shows in the course of a weekend. So it's worth their while to come. Well, this is very, very exciting. What are some of the workshops and forums that will be available? Well, like I say, the, the primary one, the one I really want to draw people's attention to, is in, in the dark times will there also be singing. It's a free, free of charge, four-hour forum in the Gallery 308, and it's being led by Isaac and Rachel from the Centre for Political Education. And there's also, we're also doing a series of dance classes at Lines, Contemporary Ballet. So this uh, forum that Mm -hmm. you were just talking about in Mm -hmm. dark times, will there also be singing? Mm -hmm. Can you talk about what's going to be the agenda? There will be audience participation. I have been promised that because I asked for it specifically. So you see this as a time where the panelists and the audience begin to map out a strategy of how we're going to sing or how, are, how we're going to express our souls well, in think, dark political times? Yes, it certainly is that. We have to sing in dark times. I mean, that's what keeps us all going. There's two ways we're trying to envision this. One is that there's people who are not activists who want to get involved. This is a way for people who are not active in politics or in, act, in, in political activism to find the people that are and to touch base with them. The other thing that we're part of and that we're trying to organize is how does San Francisco organize across sectors in that we're all pretty good at advocating for our one particular thing. So if you're if you're an affordable housing advocate, you're good at organizing around that. If you're a homeless advocate, you're good at organizing around that. I'm an arts advocate, so I'm good at organizing around that. We're trying to reach across sectors so that we can talk to each other because you know, I think an attack on one is an attack on all. So if we, if we get our funding cut, our federal funding cut for housing, then how do we all respond to that? As soon as we get our federal funding cut for, for arts, how do the other sectors react to that? Another artist you want to be talking about is Voodoo Cabaret, Gisela Tangui. Yes. So Voodoo Cabaret, their pieces are called Rock Against Racism, and they've been in the festival also previously, and it's, 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 a, it's an amazing musical show. And Gisela's wild, but she's, she, her, her lyrics are very politically charged. I mean, it's, it's just a great music show. There's, there's all kinds of, it's, it's, a, it's a variety show on stage. Sunday, June the 4th, it'll be one of our last shows of the festival. If people would like to come and you know, finish the festival with a bang, you would want to come and see Voodoo Cabaret because they're, they're really brilliant. So, Andrew, I hear England or Australia or a different kind of English from you. Yes. How did you get involved and how did you get so enamored of San Francisco to be able to put on such a huge event? I came to San Francisco in 1990 and I first got involved in the arts and in politics when the Americans started to bomb Iraq in January 1991 because thousands and thousands of people took to the streets they closed down the federal building. They closed down the freeways. Chevron still had its headquarters in San Francisco then. They closed that. And I, I came out of Margaret Thatcher's England where there was no political opposition to anything. And I just thought, by God, these people are organized. And I couldn't believe 
how organized the people of San Francisco were and how they stood up to their government when their government was doing was committing international crimes. And that's how I got involved. I went to a, a meeting of artists and writers at New College and they decided that what they wanted to do was to protest media bias in the reporting of the war by protesting outside of a different television station every week. And somebody says, well, we'll need somebody to make some signs and banners. And I wasn't working, so I said, okay, I can make some signs and banners. And then somebody else said, you'll need a place to make these signs and banners. And this man put his hand up and says, well, I got this theater. And it was a gentleman named Joe Lambert from a place called Life on the Water, which was in Fort Mason. So I went there the next day spray-painted the outside of their listed buildings and stayed for three years. And that's how I got involved in the arts. <laughs> so and I've been in San Francisco ever since, to doing arts and, and politics. Well, we're very fortunate that you have. And mm. thank you so much for sharing all this wonderful information with us and taking on such an important and enormous festival. Thank you very much. My pleasure to be here. Un placer. Turning to our focus for the rest of the hour, here is a personal message from Oscar Lopez Rivera. And then after that, we're going to go right into an interview I did with Claude Marx and Donna Wilmot about political prisoners in general. And there's just a programming note on that interview. Claude mentions the Palestinian prison hunger strike in the interview, and that strike ended successfully over the weekend. Here now is Mr. Oscar Lopez Rivera. Hello, San Francisco. I would like to express to you my heartfelt gratitude for all the support you've given me and for all the support that you have given to other political prisoners. It is my concern today that too many political prisoners still remain in prison. I exhort all of you to give as much support as you can and try to bring them home. They need to be free. There's a Puerto Rican woman named Ana Belén Montes who needs to come home to. I will see you in Berkeley on the 31st of May. Thank you. My name is Vilma V, and you're listening to La Raza Chronicles, and I have the pleasure to be in the studio with Claude Marks, the director of the Freedom Archives, and also with Donna Wilmot. She works for the Catalyst Project, which builds white people's capacity to be part of the movement for racial justice in accountable ways. Thank you so much for being my guest. Thank, Thank you, you for having us. So, obviously, this show today is d dedicated to Oscar Lopez Rivera, who will be in the Bay Area tomorrow, Wednesday, May 31st, at the First Presbyterian Church in Berkeley. So, both my guests, 
actually have been political prisoners themselves and have been active in the movement to free political prisoners. So let me start with you, Claude. What is your connection to the Puerto Rican independence movement? Well, when I was producing media at KPFA in the late 60s and early 70s, I started doing radio about the Puerto Rican independence movement. That's when I got my feet wet and actually deepened my understanding of what the anti-colonial struggle in Puerto Rico was all about. And through the course of doing both organizing work and my own political activity, got caught up in a case that involved supporting the Puerto Rican independence movement. And Donna, your connection? Pretty similar to Claude's. I, I think I first became aware of the colonial relationship that the U.S., has to Puerto Rico, um, actually learning about the sterilization of Puerto Rican women in the 60s and 70s. I worked on the um, campaign to bring home the Puerto Rican nationalist prisoners who were released in 79, did support work for the struggle on Vieques, and also M. Claude's co-defendant in the case around um, Oscar. Yeah. yeah, and before I forget, I wanted to make sure that I dedicate this interview to Leonard Peltier, who is a Native American political prisoner who remains behind bars. So tell me, Claude, you produced a pamphlet that will be given out on Wednesday, and tell us about some of the people that are found in here. Well, I think the context for understanding who they are, rather than just running through a list of names, sure. is that... Anti-colonial struggles, liberatory struggles, struggles for human rights have been engaged in by various people and movements for really a long time. And inevitably, the, the state, the U.S. government uh, commonly, but not limited to them, defends the power that has been created through the process of settler colonialism. That's what founded the United States. So we have everything from the European conquest and genocide against Native Americans, certainly the process of enslaving people from the African continent, the expansion of the empire through the conquest of Mexico, northern Mexico, which itself was colonized by Spain before that. So all of these confrontational issues uh, bring about a level of repression that results in numbers of people who are participating in those struggles of national liberation or liberation to become part of an imprisoned group. Here we, we are looking in this year, 2017, at people who in many cases have been locked up 30, 40 years or more who participated in those struggles. Um, that's how we define, in some ways, the issue of political imprisonment. So that's who we're talking about. So we have people like Leonard, and I'm glad that we're dedicating this to him. We also have a lot of people who were members of the Black Panther Party, which takes us back to the 60s. Um, some of them were set up, but others were, in fact, engaged in a level of resistance in the streets and got swept up in various police activities and were targeted. And Donna, do you have something to add listening to what Claude is talking about? Um, yeah, I, th I think it's important for people to try to understand why the state takes such repressive measures and this idea that 
you know, in a lot of countries in the world, political dissidents and political opponents are disappeared. And in the United States, they're disappeared by decades of imprisonment. And, and the state does this, I believe, to try to break people's spirit, to make an example of them, to isolate them from their communities, and to try to make them voiceless and powerless. What's important, I think, for people to realize is that for most people who are political prisoners, they continue to organize behind bars. They're not silenced. They are not powerless. And I'm not saying it's not a difficult life. I mean, these are not icons. These are flesh and blood human beings who have family, who have friends that they have been separated from, who don't get to hold their grandchildren. There's a real cost to this, but the fact that their spirits are not broken, that the state the state may have their bodies, but they don't have their souls, they don't have their spirit, I think that's really important. And I think it's important for us to challenge the the iconization and the romanticization of people because when I look at political prisoners I think that you know the, to me these are some of the people who embody some of the best um, aspects of our movement, the best qualities like really deep political commitment and courage in the face of very very difficult conditions and I feel like if we put them on a pedestal or put them on a shelf, then it's a way, again, of separating them from us. And I feel like we have to to be connected to them, to write to them, to learn their stories, to support them through commissary and letters, to support their families, and to do everything that we can to nurture that connection to people who are doing time, because we're in a period of uh, increasing repression. We anticipate um, more and more people will go to prison. Like th- there's people from the struggle in Standing Rock recently. There are people from the protest after Trump's inauguration, the J20 folks. We're going to see a lot more of that. And that's the voice of Donna Wilmot. She is one of my guests, along with Claude Marks, on La Rosa Chronicles tonight. And we're talking about political prisoners. Claude, you mentioned that they do have agency and that they do engage in resistance behind bars. And there's hunger strikes. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, there's a couple of significant things to say about hunger strikes since you mention it. Uh, in California, for example, the struggle for human rights started um, many years ago around the question of prolonged isolation. Um, in California, there's a control unit prison. Control unit prisons maintain people essentially in total isolation. The idea of it was developed many years ago uh, through all the max prisons, but amplified, so that you have these conditions that mean that they prevent people from having any viable social relations, any contact with one another inside, and certainly with family and community. And the idea of that is to amplify punishment. Of course, the U.S. denies that this is inhumane, and they, in fact, the United States denies the fact that there are people who are imprisoned because of what they believe in. So because of mass incarceration, we're talking about 2.3 million people, you have all these people locked up, and, in fact, over time, there's a capacity that builds to inside the prisons to organize against the kind of inhumane conditions. Part of that whole process of organizing 
involved a set of demands and an agreement and hostilities that was signed in order to resolve internal conflict within the prisons and focus on the human rights issues that were at hand that impacted on everybody. Without getting into that in a tremendous amount of detail, I just want to register that as of May 25th, there is a hunger strike that started in Folsom Prison here in California. At the same time, the issue of hunger strikes, which is very dramatic and life-threatening and a major, major commitment on the part of people who would participate. You know, in 2013, there were 30,000 prisoners in California who took action simultaneously, which was a huge percentage of the prisoners in held by the state of California. So in Folsom, as of May 25th, again, behind human rights demands, prisoners took action. Internationally, the issue of hunger strikes and the struggle for human rights has a very, very deep history. As of April 17th, 1,500 prisoners in Palestine held by the Zionist state of Israel engaged in a hunger strike which continues. And Donna, tell me, what are your thoughts on why it's important to support political prisoners and how we can support them? Well, I I think it's important to support political prisoners because they are part of us. We have to refuse the state's intention to separate them from the communities that they come from and fight for. And I think that they really call out in us a lot of qualities that are important, like you know, challenging cynicism in ourselves, challenging the feeling that you can't really fight the state. I feel like they're examples for us. And again, not to romanticize them, but I feel like one of the state's great weapons in terms of trying to destroy movements is is fear, is making people afraid of the consequences of standing up. And I feel like if we are really there for our folks who get caught up by the state, it makes it easier for other people to live through the consequences of it, to survive it, to still be strong. And I think their examples speak to us and speak to our own need to get stronger in the face of what the state is trying to do. And here's my final question that I'd like both of you to answer. And I'll start with you, Donna. What does the fact that Oscar Lopez Rivera is now a free man mean to you? What, what does that signify for you? I think it's an incredible victory. And first of all, it's a testament to Oscar's um, the depth of his politics, his commitment, such a strong spirit. I mean, to survive um, more than 35 years in prison, 12 of them in solitary, and to uh, to remain such a stand-up person um, and so um, in touch with the struggle in Puerto Rico. I mean, I feel like the struggle for his freedom is part of the struggle for Puerto Rican independence and self-determination. And I think it's just, it's an incredible victory that was won from decades of of work to free him. And it represents really the will, I think, of the majority of Puerto Rican people that he's, that he's home. It's such an incredible victory. And I think we have to savor that. And um, I think, you know, again, the the struggle for his release is totally connected to what's happening on the island, whether it's from this, you know, the student strike, the, what, 70,000 people who marched in the May Day Parade, the response of the Puerto Rican people to the 
the debt crisis, which is really a crisis of colonialism. <laughs> That's, you know, I, I feel like the the campaign for his release and the victory is completely integrally tied to that. And Claude, same question for you. Well, I don't have a lot to add to what Donna said, but, um, you know, it really strikes me. One of the beautiful things about Oscar is as he emerges, you know, he's very articulate and self-conscious about the issue that there's other people still locked up. So he'll talk about people like Ana Belen Montes, who's also Puerto Rican, who remains a political prisoner for her actions in support of Cuba in the face of, you know, decades of embargo and uh, he's conscious of black political prisoners, and he's articulate about it. He mentions people like Leonard uh, Peltier. And so he himself doesn't separate himself from the larger issue. I mean, it's great that he can savor his his own liberty, but he knows that this is a long-term struggle, and that's a beautiful example, one that we can learn from and get inspiration from. And that's what he was about when he was locked up also. And that's the voice of Claude Marx. He's the director of the Freedom Archives. I also have Donna Wilmot with the Catalyst Project. My name is Vilma V. And then, Claude, before you go, you said before we started that there was an upcoming film. You were part of a part of the crew that produced COINTELPRO 101. And then you said that there was something else coming out that we could look forward to. Well, we're going to be premiering uh, a documentary that we've been working on for a number of years in August uh, about the Chicano struggle with a focus on Colorado, but that tries to uh, place the issue of the Chicano movement in the context of the struggle for land and the colonial nature of the United States expanding into northern Mexico, which is inclusive of where we are. And at the same time, it's attentive to the relationship between the Chicano movement and indigenous struggles. Yeah, I love that, you know, we didn't cross the border, the border crossed us. Well, thank you so much for joining me. Donna Wilmot with The Catalyst Project and Claude Marx, the director of the Freedom Archives. Thank you so much for joining me tonight on La Rasa Chronicles. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Vilma. That was Claude Marx and Donna Wilmot talking about the issue of political prisoners in the United States. And you're listening to La Rasa Chronicles on 94.1 KPFA. I'm your host tonight, Vilma V. In continuing our focus on Puerto Rico... Here is Nelson Dennis, and he's the author of The War Against All Puerto Ricans, talking a little bit about the economic history of Puerto Rico, which forms the foundation of its current economic crisis. And right after that, you'll hear our own Julieta Kusnir speaking with Eli Fantuzzi about his project called Defend Puerto Rico. Part of why we've gotten here today to where we are with a $72 billion debt is inherent in the relationship with the United States. The United States went in 1898. The very next year, Huracan San Siriaco was the most devastating hurricane of the century. The entire coffee crop was lost, about $50 million worth of coffee. The United States gave no hurricane relief, nothing meaningful. Instead, the following year of 1900, they devalued the Puerto Rican currency by 40%, and they had to hand in all the Puerto Rican pesos for, which was a Spanish peso, for an American dollar. Now, these were currencies of roughly equivalent value. They, so they devalued 
every Puerto Rican, they took away 40% of their net worth. You do that in this country, there's going to be a revolution. The society could not exist. And then the very next year, in 1901, the Hollander Act created a steeply graduated set of property taxes that had never existed before on the island. So between the hurricane, a currency devaluation, and property taxes, the farmers were losing their property. They were desperate for liquidity. They had nowhere to go. They could only go to one place, the American Colonial Bank. But there was no usury law restriction. So the American Colonial Bank charged whatever it wanted. The reason is they didn't want the debt repaid. They wanted the collateral. They wanted the land. That's what they wanted. And within 30 years, they got it. Here's what happens. By 1930, 80% of the agriculture of the arable land of Puerto Rico was owned by North American banking syndicates. They were called centrales. They turned a previously diversified, self-sustaining agriculture into a one-crop cash cow economy, that of sugar. And four of them alone, Fajardo, East Puerto Rico Sugar, Aguirre, and Guanica, those four alone own half of that 80% of the land. So four own half of 80 is 40%. 40% of the acreage of Puerto Rico was owned by four North American corporations. So they divested Puerto Ricans from their own economy. When you add to that now, the fact that Puerto Rico is an island with the Jones Act, it's Section 27 of the Merchant Marine Act of 1920, and it is that bill that creates the tariff structure and the pricing structure of all the products that, that come into Puerto Rico. So between taking away the agriculture from the Puerto Ricans themselves, their own land, and by creating the Jones Act, you basically took away the ability of Puerto Ricans to develop their own economy. They made them utterly dependent on foreign capital and on the United States. And that's the single greatest reason why we are today, because the United States created a completely dependent economy in Puerto Rico. Ah. Es triste ver a un doctor en Nueva York cuando ayer mataron tres bajo este puto calor y pa' colmo estudiantes que estaban madurando pero su maestra preferida se mudó pa' Orlando. Es triste verla tanto en Estados Unidos cuando por culpa de ellos aquí nos dividimos que si yo quiero Estado, el otro la libertad y no es nuestra decisión pa' decirte la verdad es de un cabrón Clinton, un cabrón Donald Trump que no tiene ni una gota nuestra en su corazón nunca han escuchado coquí ni un chiste de Pepito, no saben quién es Alpizu, vetan cenitito, ni los ricos que es la comida de abuela, que la fugas para la playa, que fugas pichar escuela, que el lechón se come, pero puede ser policía y un asalto de madrugada puede traer la alegría. No le trata quicardia si estamos empate, en cualquier deporte sea pelota o carrate. I'm Julieta Kusnid, you're listening to La Raza Chronicles, and I'm here with Eli Jacob Fantuzzi, and he's a founder of Defend Puerto Rico, which is a multi-platform media project to tell the stories of resistance in Puerto Rico. Thank you so much, Eli, for being here. Thank you. What a pleasure. So, Eli, start us off. Why don't you let us know, how did this project come to be? Tell us about Defend Puerto Rico. Well, Defend Puerto Rico started when we heard about the crisis, a $72 billion economic debt that Puerto Rico is in. And so I was talking to my friend Michael Cordero in New York, and we we're trying to get information about it. And the only thing that we could find was graphs, pie graphs and charts. And we knew that numbers alone aren't going to change anything or motivate people to do anything about the situation. So we decided to call up two more friends. So it was four of us that started the project. 
and we went back to Puerto Rico with the idea to learn for for ourselves what was happening on the ground and then to be able to share those stories with the diaspora of Puerto Rico. So you have been doing a lot of work to connect people to stories. So tell us about some of the things you're hearing, because as you mentioned, it is hard to get information over here around what's really happening on the ground on the island. Yes, we believe that telling stories is the way that we're going to be able to change the world to to plant am- empathy and to to get people involved and, and want to do something about this situation. So the stories that we're telling are not only sad stories. We we went to the island thinking that we may hear from teachers and families that how many schools have closed and and all of that stuff that the repercussions of the crisis are true and and are happening and we document some of that but there is also a beautiful side of the resistance and so we talked to the people that created Casa Taft that took over abandoned house um as you know the economic crisis has created a huge um void or people are leaving the island at huge numbers to look for jobs in the United States. And so there's a lot of abandoned houses. And what Casa Taf did is they started a community project there at the house and it went through the courts and they actually won. So they set the precedent on how to take over a abandoned house and create a nonprofit organization to be able to do that. And we're looking forward to what that means for Puerto Rico's future. So that's one of the stories that we tell. We also tell stories from musicians and how they use their music to resist. We tell stories of agriculture, people talking about sustainability and going back to the land um, so that we don't have to import all of these foreign products and and reconnect with nature. So there's there's so many beautiful stories from the struggle that's that's currently taking place in Puerto Rico. And we hope that you're interested and that you can check them out and hear them. Eli Jacob Antuzzi, it is hard to actually even access some of the beautiful art and culture that's coming out of Puerto Rico. It is not, some of the art just stays on the island and we don't get exposed to it. So you do a lot of that work too. A lot of your work for many, many years now has been documenting culture work and how culture has been such a powerful weapon to fight for resistance and fight for change and also give people strength and energy to push forward. So I know that we featured one of the musicians that you feature in Defend Puerto Rico. Why don't you tell us about him and about his story? PJ Sensuela is an amazing rap artist. Uh, he uses a lot of Puerto Rican elements in his music. I was just hanging out with him in Texas at the South by Southwest Music Conference as well. And he has a, a, a message uh, to send to the people like like you heard earlier. Um, we also have groups like Ife. Ife is an amazing group that's really pushing the boundaries of what Puerto Rican music sounds like. Um, there's not. I don't even think there's a genre category that they would fit in. Um, so there's so much, so much good music and so much culture talking about uh, keeping our history, keeping our culture alive through bomba, through plena, and and that's the best way to create our vision for ourselves of what we want Puerto Rico to be for the future. So how can people listening get involved? I know a lot of people really want to find out more about what's happening on the island. They want to plug in and they want to hear some of these stories to kind of 
energize them to fight for all the things that they see are needed for the island, whether it's fighting back on cuts that are happening to education Mm -hmm. or whether it's supporting local artists, whatever they can do. So how can people uh, connect to Defend Puerto Rico? And if they know of people that maybe would are also doing great stuff on the island that should be lifted up, what can they do? Thank you. So I call Defend Puerto Rico a living documentary, and and we're documenting these stories. But the idea is for you, the audience, to interact with them, connect with the people that we're talking about, connect with us, tell us who to talk to. You can go to DefendPR.com, or you could go to Defend Puerto Rico on Facebook and hear these stories. The great thing is that a lot of them are in English. It's hard to get this information in English. Some of the stories are in Spanish as well, and we hope to be able to translate them in the future. And so please be in touch with us. Connect us to what you know on the island. We're connecting you to different people if you're going there, if you have family there, and to the different ways of resisting. So if you want to support by supporting these artists or you want to support us in telling these stories, we would love to hear from you. That's the voice of Eli Jacob Fantuzzi, and he is part of a wonderful group of powerful artists and filmmakers making these multimedia pieces. I can tell a lot of hours go into this on the daily. So how is that possible? How do you all do this? So we started out um, from our pocket. We knew that these stories had to be told, so we went to Puerto Rico and we started the project. When we came back, I heard about the East Bay Fund for Artists. I applied, and I I just found out I received a matching grant. So we're really excited. Um, If you want to support us, go to defendpr.com. We need to match this money that they gave us. And in September, the idea is we're going to come back with all the information, all the material, the project fully, and be able to present it to you in September. So we're really looking forward to that here in the East Bay. So be ready. Mark it on your calendars. And that was Julieta Kuznir and Eli Fantuzzi about how Puerto Ricans, the diaspora, and and their allies can defend Puerto Rico during these difficult economic and political times. And finally tonight, we turn to the student strikes at the University of Puerto Rico, which continue. We'll start with a news update from National Public Radio and then go right into an interview I did with Professor Javier Cordova. He's the vice president of the Association of University Professors about the ongoing student strike at the University of Puerto Rico, which began in April. Now to Puerto Rico, where the financial crisis has meant big trouble at the U.S. territory's largest public university. For nearly two months, students have been on strike, an action that has shut down classes for more than 50,000 students. From San Juan, NPR's Greg Allen filed this report. At the University of Puerto Rico in a San Juan suburb, the normally bustling campus is now strangely empty. In the center, there's an ornate bell tower with a banner hanging from it. It says, Revolution, damn it. It's been a really symbolic space for for the fight. Minette Bonilla is an architecture student who was set to graduate in June. Since the end of March, she's been not in classes, but part of a student group that has shut down the university. I think some things are more important than my graduation, (laughs) so I would rather keep the university open for the people that come after us and after me. 
Students sleep in tents on the university grounds and at the one open gate screen any who want to enter. Students called the strike after the government began negotiations with a financial oversight board established by Congress to help Puerto Rico restructure its $74 billion debt. The oversight board proposed cutting government support for the university's 11 campuses in half by $450 million, an amount critics say would cripple the university. Bonilla says government officials and oversight board members, many of whom attended blue-chip schools on the mainland, don't seem to understand the importance of the university to the island's future. If you've been studying in Ivy League schools and if, if you've been studying in other institutions, I can understand their perception of not having to need public education. They've never needed it. In recent weeks, tensions surrounding the strike have risen. Students voted to defy a court order to reopen the university. School officials now face heavy pressure to end the strike. Just this week, the university's interim chancellor resigned. James Seal is an associate professor of education, and he heads a faculty association on campus. Everybody wants the gates open. The question is, what are we willing to do to open those gates? Nobody's, well, actually I was in a meeting Monday afternoon where some people said, yeah, you're going to have to use force, and it's going to have to be the police. Seal says most faculty members, even those pushing for an end to the strike, agree that the proposed cuts are draconian. The strike is one of the most immediate and visible impacts yet of Puerto Rico's debt crisis. But more budget cuts are coming. The government recently shut down more than 180 public schools and is preparing to unveil big reductions to health care benefits for many on the island. In a now empty student center at the university, strikers have set up shop. A radio plays while a group of students prepare lunch for 200, part of the occupying force on campus. The students say they plan to continue the strike until members of the oversight board agree to a negotiation that will ensure a secure financial future for the university. Craig Allen, NPR News, San Juan, Puerto Rico. You're listening to La Raza Chronicles. My name is Vilma V. And in keeping with our theme of Puerto Rico this hour, I have on the line Javier Cordova, and he is a computer science professor at the University of Puerto Rico, and he's also the vice president of the Puerto Rican Association of University Professors. And he's going to give us a little update on what's been happening in Puerto Rico. Professor Cordova, are you with us? Yes, I'm here. So tell us, there was a general strike that was authorized on April 5th. What's been going on since then? Yeah, the students have been uh, in strike for almost two months now. They have been protesting against uh, the cuts to the budget of the University of Puerto Rico that the Contra Fiscal Board and the government of Puerto Rico are trying to push forward. For the university, it's a cut that is more than 60% of the budget, of the actual budget of the University of Puerto Rico. It will imply the close or uh, privatization of some of the campus of the University of Puerto Rico, and the students have been protesting for that huge cut. I mean, the University of Puerto Rico will not be able to operate a city with that uh, amount of uh, cut in its budget. So the students have been in strike in nine of the 11 campus of the university. Actually, some of the some of the strikes in some of the campus have been have been ended in the last uh, in the last week. Actually, now we have six of the campus are now in strike. Both of the principal campus, the main campus of the University of Puerto Rico, Rio Piedras and Mayagüez are in strike for a couple of months. They are also protesting because there's, there's going to be a huge cut in health care for Puerto Rico and uh, pensions for retired people will be cut down. 
So they have been uh, in solidarity with the people of Puerto Rico, uh, protesting that uh, essential services that the government should provide uh, shouldn't be subject to cuts. Uh, in, they have also been in solidarity to the rest of the people of Puerto Rico, uh, protesting against that. And now when we say that there's a strike, that means that the students have locked down the university and there's a gate that folks cannot come through. Is that right? Exactly, exactly. yeah. Uh, if the gates are closed uh, in this campus and actually the non-teaching employees and professors have been in solidarity with them. We are supporting the strike of the students because they are struggling to defend the University of Puerto Rico as a public system and that uh, the campus should not be privatized, they should, be, they should not be closed, and we cannot, uh, the university will not be able to operate with uh, this uh, amount of uh, reduction in, the, in its, in its uh, budget. And tell us what happened with the interim president, Nivia Fernandez, and members of the Board of Governors. What happened recently there? Yeah, last week, uh, the president of the University of Puerto Rico and the president of the Board of Governors and the vice president of the Board of Governors, the three of them uh, stepped down because they couldn't uh, make an agreement with the students for one hand, and the other hand, they couldn't be able to open the gate. These people respond to the previous administration of Puerto Rico, the previous political party. The governor, the actual governor of Puerto Rico has not appointed enough member to the Board of Governors, and the Board of Governors and the President, uh, they said that they didn't have the support of the government in terms of the mobilization of the police to open the gates, uh, which we oppose. I mean, we don't want the police to come up and open the gates by force. That would not solve the problem of the University of Puerto Rico. We want the solution to be by uh, negotiation. But the president, the board of governors, and the president of Puerto Rico, they didn't feel that they have the support of the government. They were probably going to go to jail because they had a disrespect from the court. They need, they had to open the gates, and they didn't have the students' agreement to open the gates. They don't have the support of the government in terms of using the force to open the gates. If they had their, their, their hands tied. Uh, tight, and they just stepped down because they didn't want to go to jail, basically. And is there some concern that if they can't come to an, a negotiated agreement that force will be used? What has the police chief, Michelle Hernandez, had to say about the strike? Yeah, at this point, they are not, they, they have said they, they will respect the autonomy of the university and they will not mobilize the police to intervene in the university crisis. That has been also the position of the governor of Puerto Rico, Ricardo Rosselló. We agree with that in a sense. I mean, we don't want uh, the, the gates to be opened by force. We want a negotiated agreement, and we are pushing forward. Actually, there is now a negotiating committee that has been formed since the last week. They have, they have advanced in the agreement with the students. They, uh, we are very close to come up with an agreement, and that's the way that the student strike should be solved by a negotiated agreement. Actually, the Puerto Rican Association of University Professors is participating in this committee, and we are trying to push forward an agreement to solve the crisis of the university. And you're listening to the voice of Professor Javier Cordoba. He is a professor at the University of Puerto Rico. He's also the vice president 
of the Puerto Rican Association of University Professors. And then tell me a little bit about the university and how many campuses and how many students are we talking about? How how widespread is this strike? The University of Puerto Rico is the only public system at the university level of Puerto Rico. We have 11 campus spread uh, uh, around the island. The two main campus are Rio Piedras and Mayagüez. Now they are both in strike. We have more than 60,000 students and uh, 30 thousand students belong to the eight campus that do not offer graduate programs. So you have an idea of what is going on. The, the control board has been announcing a cut for the university of $550 million. The eight campus that do not offer graduate programs in Puerto Rico, I teach in one of them actually at the Arecibo campus. Uh, these campus are in Humacao, Calle, uh, Arecibo, Aguadilla, Ponce, um, Carolina, Bayamón. There are eight campus around the island. The whole budget of these eight campus is only $250 million. So if they're going to cut $450 million, they will have to close or privatize these eight campus, and still they have to cut $200 million for the main campus of the university, which are Rio uh, Piedras Mayagüez and the Medical Science Campus. So the, the cost that we're talking about is huge, and it will destroy the University of Puerto Rico as it is. That's why we support the strike by the students, and we hope that they can get an agreement that will benefit the University of Puerto Rico to keep it alive. And as we move to wrap up, I do want to ask you about the proposal to cut K through 12 schools in Puerto Rico because the fiscal control board are seeking to shut down 180 public schools in Puerto Rico. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, since the last uh, few years, uh, the government has been closing schools and now they want to close 189 schools additionally of, of the ones that they have already cut. So it's a huge a reduction in the public system in Puerto Rico, and the Fiscal Control Board is planning to do this for next coming year. So we, ha- we used to have 1,500 schools in Puerto Rico. Now with these cuts, probably will be around 1,000. So the reduction has been around 33% of the public schools in Puerto Rico. It's a huge uh, attack to the public system which will be affecting most the poor people in Puerto Rico, which are the ones that have to go to public systems. And before I let you go, how could people here in the Bay Area find out more about what's going on? Where's the best site of information? How would you suggest that we stay in contact and try to support the students and the resistance that's happening currently in Puerto Rico? Yeah, the students have had some important communication channels to keep information about the student strike and what's going on in Puerto Rico. Uh, there's one that is called Pulso Estudiantil, Pulso Estudiantil, which is, has a lot of information. It's mainly, it's, uh, mainly uh, I think, it's, uh, in Facebook. And another one is the Centro de Comunicación Estudiantil, Student Communication Center in, in English, Centro de Comunicación Estudiantil, where you can also find information about what's going on in Puerto Rico. I mean, there's a lot of information in different uh, websites. Uh, the Puerto Rican Association of University Professors has also a website. You can find it in Spanish, Asociación Puerto Riqueña de Profesores Universitarios, APPU. 
Apple. And finally, Professor Cordova, tomorrow, Wednesday, May 31st, Oscar Lopez Rivera arrives in the Bay Area. Do you have any thoughts or anything you'd like to say about Oscar Lopez Rivera? Well, Oscar Lopez Rivera, we were fighting so much time to free him. Uh, we are so happy that he's now with us. And I, I am pretty sure that he's going to be uh, fighting for the unity of Puerto Rico against the big corporations that are trying to take the money out from Puerto Rico and, and to construct a better society for Puerto Rico. Thank you so much, Professor Cordova. He's a professor at the University of Puerto Rico and the vice president of the Puerto Rican Association of University Professors. Thank you so much for joining me tonight on La Raza Chronicles. Thank you very much. Confiscaron los guiros, también los panderos, por formar una plena en la huelga de los muelleros. Confiscaron los guiros, también los panderos, por formar una plena en la huelga de los was just a tiny piece of La Mixa Criolla with their song La Huelga. The bomba music you heard earlier this hour was the youth bomba group Genepas, who will be performing tomorrow night along with the John Santos Quartet, the hip-hop artist Rico Pavon, at the Welcome Oscar event at the First Presbyterian Church in Berkeley. Go to kpfa.org for more information, or you can always email freeoscarnow at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening to La Raza Chronicles. We'll be back next week. Palante.